You are listening to ShipIt, a podcast about operations, infrastructure, and platform as a product people. I'm your host, Gerhard Lazu, and today I'm talking with the startup founders that I joined in 2014 as Cloud Credo and stuck together through two acquisitions, Pivotal and VMware. Colin Humphreys, Paula Kennedy, and Chris Headley are the founders of Sintasso, the platform as a product startup. Colin is the visionary, Chris is the engineer, and Paula actually runs the show. They were my team for many years, and it makes me great pleasure to have them here today learning about their latest adventure. We talk about what it takes to build a platform team, why team topologies is a good conversation starter, and why a curated blend of off-the-shelf and self-created services are required in any organization operating at scale. Your hunch is right, all of us used to be in the same pivotal office with Tamar, our guest from episode 31. Chris used to win all table tennis matches without even breaking a sweat. Today, I get my comeback. Big thanks to our partners Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. Thank you for the great bandwidth Fastly. You can learn more at Fastly.com. Ship new features with confidence by getting your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly.com. And thank you Linode for keeping our Kubernetes fast and simple. Run your setup as we do, valeno.com forward slash changelog. This episode is brought to you by Honeycomb. Honeycomb is built on the belief that there's a more efficient way to understand exactly what is happening in production right now. When production is running slow, it's hard to know exactly where problems originate. Is it your application code, your users, or the underlying systems. Teams who don't use Honeycomb scroll through endless dashboards guessing at what they mean. They deal with alert floods, guessing which ones matter, and go from tool to tool to tool, guessing at how the puzzle pieces all fit together. It's this context switching and tool sprawl that is slowly killing your teams and your business. With Honeycomb, you get a fast, unified, and clear understanding of the one thing driving your business, production. Honeycomb quickly shows you the correct source of issues, discover hidden problems, even in the most complex stacks, understand why your app feels slow to only some users. With Honeycomb, you guess less and know more. Join the swarm and try Honeycomb free today at honeycomb.io slash changelog. Again, honeycomb.io slash changelog. Today I'm joined by my favorite startup team, Chris, Headley, Colin Humphreys, and Paula Kennedy. Welcome. It's a warm welcome, Gerhard. You must only know one startup team. Well, you're not very far from the truth, uh, <laughs> because why do I say my favorite, right? <laughs> so seven years ago, I had a platform talk with Colin, which convinced me on the spot to join the team, to join the Cloud Credo startup. And that's why I say you're my favorite startup team, because in the last seven years, I haven't known a better startup than Cloud Credo. Oh, thank you, Gerhard. That's very kind. Can I say you are unequivocally my favorite podcast host? 
<laughs> and this is your first podcast, so yes. <laughs> I just devour you, Sidra. I mean, it's, it's, you are absolutely my favorite. You're also my least favorite at the same time because you are the only one I know. But yes, you are. <laughs> okay. You are absolutely, unequivocally, like canonical truth. You're my favorite one, Gerhard. Thank you, Colin. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. So, but I'm wondering, do you remember the platform talk that we had, Colin? seven years ago do you still remember it we've worked together for a long period of time for those seven years which particular because let's be straight here Gerhard I talk a lot about platforms to many people's great cost I know you do in terms of time but I do speak a lot about platforms so which particular platform talk are you talking about the one that convinced me to join Klaus Credo this was the open credo office you met me I think the first time and you were sharing the vision that you had about platforms and why you thought Cloud Foundry at the time was amazing. I couldn't have been at the Cloud Credo office because we squatted in... No, the Open Credo one. Oh, the Open Credo office, yes. We definitely squatted there. The Open Credo office, yes. <laughs> that was seven years ago. So that was arguably kind of a midpoint in a journey that we've all been on for a really long time. And it's been very interesting. I, I think to kind of have that self-awareness and that reflection, we're nowhere near the end of that journey. There's a huge swelling, a, a rise in platforms at the moment. Like talk about platforms is going through the roof. Everyone thinking about how can we uh, enable application teams to deliver more. So I think, yes, we were talking about seven years ago, but I have been building platforms for 20 years odd now. I'm sure, you know, Chris Asgard has been a Paul. We've all worked on the, in this area for so long now. Yeah. And Cloud Foundry was amazing. And I learned so, so much from it. I say was amazing, is amazing. It handles a particular set of needs incredibly well. And I've learned so, so much from it. But it's, it's going to be interesting to think about like, in the context of this conversation, where were we seven years ago? What had we learned that took us to that point seven years ago? And what did we learn in those seven years? And what's the future trajectory? What's the next seven years? Like, you know, we'll, we'll be talking in seven years, Gerhard, about where we are now and looking back on this podcast and saying, do you remember when we said that stuff about that thing? Like, do you remember when Kubernetes was a thing? Yeah. <laughs> It'll be interesting. I can see that happening. I can definitely see that happening. I also am very glad that we are recording this conversation so we can listen back to it seven years from now. And I wish we had recorded our conversation seven years ago. <laughs> but uh, what I do remember is a talk that you gave at the Open Credo office. And the talk was about your journey when it comes to deploying apps. And it starts with building a data center. <laughs> and that really got me. <laughs> Because you were saying, that's how not to do it. I've done it. <laughs> and I wish others wouldn't repeat my mistake. So that, that really caught me now. We'll come back to this, but you asked me to do something in that talk, which I haven't done, and I will do during this recording. And I'll explain it to the others <laughs> a bit later. So seven years ago, you asked me to do something. I didn't forget. I just couldn't do it at the time. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> just be prepared. Oh, really? <laughs> so you've waited seven years to do this I thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That is impressive patience. Wow. I'm intensely curious about what it's going to be. And I, I wonder if it's going to be worth the wait. It will be. <laughs> they do say revenge. Revenge is best served cold. Seven years is a long time to cool off. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Seven years is absolute zero. Like <laughs> zero degrees Kelvin revenge. So I, I wonder how this is going to go. But go, no, you need to let us know when you do the thing that you promised seven years ago and haven't been able to do in the intervening <laughs> period. I'm, I'm somewhat terrified now. Slight sense of trepidation, but I'm looking forward to it. Trust me, it'll be great. It'll be great. You mentioned the talk and mentioned how I started a lot of talks um, a while back, talking about 
projects I'd worked on in the past, and I use that word project very specifically, where people were wasting huge amounts of money. Like the particular one we're talking about here was a 12 million pound project in which I worked for three years with a number of people in the order of hundreds to deliver a system that was cancelled approximately a month after it was delivered because the users hated it. And I think one of the biggest trends we've seen in the past 10 years is really shifting from projects to products and product thinking. And that's like a massive, massive shift in the industry, thinking that things aren't just like once and done. This notion of continuous iteration, small batches, fast feedback, those kind of things, that product orientation, learning about your users, iterating towards their needs. And you, know, you write it, you run it kind of mentality with the teams that deliver those products. That's been a change that swept through at every level. And people commonly talk about that in terms of the application teams. And, oh, our application is no longer a project. This is going to be a product. We're going to have a team that are, you know, are there for the life of that application and while it's delivering value. But I, I would say the key thing that I've homed in on, and I know you have as well, um, uh, the other people on the call, I know you've all honed in on this notion of platform as a product and taking that product methodology, taking that product thinking, the user centricity, taking that and bringing it to the platform layer. And that's kind of the key thing that our company stands for and that we stand for is taking that product orientated thinking and the entire kind of team composition, you write it, you run it, the ethos, user centric design, lean product management, uh, extreme programming, that whole set of patterns and bringing those patterns to life at the platform layer of the stack. I'm really glad that you mentioned that, Colin, because that ties in really nicely with something that Paula did recently. So I think the equivalent of let's build a data center seven years ago is the today means let's build a platform, right? And two years later, you still haven't shipped anything. You've just like built a platform. So I can see, you know, the history repeating itself. And Paula, you gave a talk about a month ago at the DevOps Enterprise, DevOps Enterprise Summit, is it? Or DevOps? I did, yes. DevOps Enterprise Summit, yes. And the talk was about crossing the platform gap. Can you tell us about it? Yeah. So I was very lucky to have my talk selected. And what it was really about was, as Colin mentioned, it, it was very much about what we've seen in the last few years. And even though we have been talking about the challenges of teams trying to get from kind of the infrastructure layer to deploying applications. We've been talking about that for a long time. And DevOps was kind of supposed to help where things could get shifted from apps and, and like people could collaborate together. But what we've seen is that if the you build it, you run it mentality is what app teams are being asked to do. They're being asked to take on more and more things. And when they are trying to build, particularly on something like Kubernetes, which has lots of pieces that have to be wired together, it means the gap to get from infrastructure to delivering the actual value is just getting more and more complicated. And there's more things to manage. And we're big fans of team topologies. I don't know if you've read that book, fantastic book, but they talk about cognitive load as being a, a, big, a big problem for those app teams because they're being asked to manage more and more components in the stack. They're trying to juggle more and more things. And it just means that they can't focus on delivering the application. And so that's what we describe as the platform gap. There's a fantastic blog about it on our website, but, and I talked about it as well, as you mentioned, but it's basically like, how can we make it easier for teams to cross that platform gap? And the thing I talked about at DevOps Enterprise Summit was there's two parts to it. One is about organization change, which Teams Apologies handles really, really well. It's about having application teams able to focus on their core value and then have platform team that can provide the supporting 
platform. And then there's kind of enabling teams and specialist teams that can also support. And it's a way of organizing to get fast flow across the business. That's really what Team Topologies is about. And then the second part that I talked about specifically, which Colin mentioned, was platform as a product. So when you have your platform team in place, what should they be doing? What are the skills that they need? What are the things that they should focus on? Treating their platform as an internal product, making it useful, making it compelling, making it like the right platform for the app teams. And how do they how do they go about it? Mm -hmm. That was what I talked about. Seemed to go well. It was kind of odd though. Like the experience of pre-recording the talk was right. quite interesting. Like the whole the whole experience of doing that for Dev at Sunrise Summit was something I hadn't done before. It was quite interesting, but it seemed to go well. So if it's pre-recorded, doesn't mean that. I could watch the talk. Is it online? It is. So there's a whole video library. I think mm. what you need to do is, I think you can get two weeks free. You can sign up, you sort of sign up for membership and you get two weeks to watch as many right. talks as you want for free. Okay. So you could go watch it. What was interesting was I did so many takes of it. Mm. This is just a weird story, but I did so many takes because I wanted to get it perfect. Right. And I think when you give a live talk, you just, it, you have at it. And if you mess it up, you know, it's done. When you're yeah. pre-recording, you're like, oh, I messed that up. I'm going to do it again. And I did multiple, multiple, multiple takes. By the time I nailed the perfect recording, it was one o'clock in the morning. Oh. But it was perfect. No mistakes. Said everything I wanted. Awesome. And then when I watched it back, it was kind of low energy. Because <laughs> by the time I did it, it was one o'clock in the morning. So my yeah, energy level was quite flat. But, but yeah, I enjoyed it. Okay. So I know what you mean. I used to do things like that before I discovered video editing and editing my talks. I've just changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> so I know, yeah, you're right. Like you have to also like voiceover. That's amazing, especially if you're like showing something, but that also takes time. You're right. I think um, not having conferences in person and having talks pre-recorded, it just, you know, makes certain things difficult. And this definitely is one of them, but I'm sure it's better than, I know, giving the talk from the UK on a US time zone and be awake like at one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning. So uh, yeah, at least there's that. Okay. Where do you stand when it comes to platforms, Chris? What is your perspective and how do you see this space? What is my perspective? That's a very interesting question, Gerhard. I guess the, I used to be, if you go far enough back in time to my pre-Cloud Credo days, I guess I was on the application teams. I was an application developer. I was writing business-facing applications to serve industries and the banking industry, the sports betting industries, uh, government kind of projects. And I was lucky enough to be in the US working on a project with VMware at the time. This will have been circa 2010, 2011, working with a big banking client out of the US and VMware were there. And through my connections kind of on the ground there with that client, I got to see Cloud Foundry for the first time. Cloud Foundry was kind of the the first on-premise platform as a product, kind of, you could, you could call it that if you like, that PaaS, it provided that PaaS-like experience. I looked at Cloud Foundry, I saw an app being pushed into it, I saw CF Push for the first time, I saw CF Create Service and CF Bind work for the first time. And this was a very, very early version of CF, I don't even think it had been open sourced at this time. And I think I looked at that platform and I said to myself, probably said it out loud, I will never work on a project ever again that doesn't use this technology or one like it. And from that moment onwards, I kind of got sucked in to the CF ecosystem. I got sucked in um, to the platform ecosystem. And actually, unfortunately, I never got to work on a project as an application developer that got to push code into, into a Cloud Foundry on a, on a live project. From that point onwards, I only end up working on Cloud Foundry itself or on platform teams, standing up Cloud Foundries for other developers. 
because anybody who was interested in SAFE at that time kind of got sucked into the the ecosystem. And then on the, on the back of that experience, Cloud Credo came along. We became that kind of Cloud Foundry open source consultancy, very small out of London. And then eventually we were quite by pivotal. So I just went on the journey of, of building the platforms and that's kind of where it's led me. But to answer your question directly, I think it's the force multiplier that I've observed great platforms can have on organizations, on, on, on development teams. To be able to build a platform and offer it to a set of users and just reduce the number of things that those users have to worry about, just to remove that kind of organizational friction, if you like, so people can get stuff done. I think it's that specifically that kind of keeps me motivated. I don't see the problem as being solved yet. There are are still so many opportunities. There are so many organizations that need help. Kate has come along. It's fantastic. Kate is arguably a, a platform building technology rather than a platform you can offer to end users in a kind of meaningful, consumable way. So the opportunity there to, to kind of continue the journey and, and try and build some abstractions on, on an, in and around Kate to kind of continue helping to continue pushing that kind of platform movement forward is, again, the, the thing that continues to motivate motivate me. And, you know, here we are with Sintasso trying to do something about that, hopefully. Yeah. I wonder if we should maybe maybe all think about the elephant in the room. So for those people who are listening, four of us are all actually standing in one room. We'll have one hand each on an elephant. And that elephant has Cloud Foundry written on it. So we've touched on it a few times. Mm-hmm. And it's worth actually covering, like, what did we learn from that journey? Where is our thinking now? And what have we kind of taken on and moved on? Because I think it's really important to talk about that, given that we've all got you know a great degree of history working with Cloud Foundry. And I think... From my personal perspective, I think the thing that I really didn't understand enough at the time, and now I've grown to understand, is the notion, in fact, maybe it's sitting right in front of me, you have application teams and you have platform teams. And we talk about those in terms of, you know, in glowing terms, you write it, you run it. So prior to that, we would have development teams and operations teams who had dev and ops, and we said, like, yeah, this doesn't work well. People are throwing things over the walls. So then we, we, we flip that sideways on to instead say your application teams now write their code and look after their code and then lower down the stack, the platform teams, build the platform, develop the platform and also operate the platform. So everyone's looking after their stack, their like layer, as it were, and providing APIs to the layer up. You may have an infrastructure team, one or more platform teams, many application teams. Everyone's looking after their part of it. Now, the part I think that we've learned didn't work out so well is the notion that any one vendor or group of vendors can provide a platform that's fit for purpose in all organizations. Now, I put my hand up. I was 100% on board at Pivotal with building something called One Platform, which is going to be the one platform to rule them all. <laughs> now, okay. this, in hindsight, was short-sighted because we actually learned that, you know, the 80-20 rule really fit well. Nearly everyone's doing 80% of stuff that's kind of normal and 20% that's differentiating. But over time, you start to talk to enough customers and we spoke to, you know, at Pivotal, we had hundreds, like 350-ish, and we spent time with them, we would learn about them. But the 20% that was different about each customer was different with each customer. Mm -hmm. So to develop a common one platform that would suit all of their needs became impossible. And what we'd actually done is like violate the understanding we had about the world in that your platform team shouldn't just be operating somebody else's platform they're also developers of the platform and to me at the moment everyone is fixated on right app devs developer experience this whole set of things and then you see this emerging set of patterns around app ops everyone's talking about app ops how do we make that work and then you've got vendors still trying to build the one platform to rule them all and no one's addressing platform developers or the platform development responsibilities of a platform team how do we build and curate a great 
platform? How do we develop that? How do we operate that? How do we monitor that? How do we measure that? How do we do all the responsibilities that are necessary to build a great platform? And I feel like nobody out there is addressing what it means to be a good platform developer and to bring that sense of set of responsibilities to a platform team. Everyone thinks platform teams just take off the shelf software and run it. And I think that's where Pivotal went wrong. I think that's where all the big vendors go wrong. No one's trying to help people develop great platforms. And that's where we come in. We, Sentasso, have built a framework called Kratix, which is all about helping you to build the platform relevant to your organization. And I think that's a really like challenging set of concerns that no one's looking at. And this the framework that we've built is about enabling you to build the framework that's for your organization, not saying to you, here is a whole platform, take it and use it in your organization. Because we've learned that platform, if handed to everybody, will not fit everybody's needs. I'm really glad that you mentioned that for a couple of reasons. The primary one, I think this is the only one which I'm going to mention, is that people want that one Kubernetes experience. They look at the cloud native ecosystem and they say, this is too confusing. Give me the version that I need. Like that thing doesn't exist. And it doesn't exist because you need to know what is important to you. So what are the principles that you're trying to convey in this platform, that you're trying to embed in this platform? So once you know what those principles are, what is important to you, and this, by the way, is different across different industries, across even different teams. So once we establish what those things are, how do you build that one platform, which by the way, it's only going to be your platform. I don't think anyone else will be able to use it. Maybe your competitors, but they're busy doing other things, by the way. So agreed. Yeah. Do you think about this differently, Paula? Well, it's interesting because there's like the Kelsey Hightower tweet, which is basically around everybody wants a PaaS. They just want to build it themselves. And I think that's where we've tried to learn the lessons from Cloud Foundry. Like people loved the CF push experience. They loved being able to write some code, have an idea. Like the, the kind of the promise for Cloud Foundry was write some code in the morning, have an idea, write some code, push it. Bob's your uncle. You've got a running application in production, right? People love that. And I think, you know, developers like it and business owners like it and customers like it. Like it's, it's that's what people want. But to what Colin said, the PaaS experience that they're looking for, everybody's actual platform as a service needs to fit them, needs to fit their bespoke needs. And when Cloud Foundry tried to put all the wiring in a box and say, here's the box, just use it, it just didn't fit. And there were too many edge cases and they were all different for different customers. And so it's kind of challenging. I think people want the simplicity of a Cloud Foundry experience, but they want the composability of Kubernetes. They want to be able to wire together the thing they want, but wiring together the thing they want, it's really hard. So people are looking for abstractions. Maybe they're looking for the vendors or the cloud providers to say, just give me everything that I need and make it really easy for me to use it. But I think where we're trying to see our place in the market is we want to give people that opportunity to have a, a simple experience, but they can build it themselves in an easier way. Like we're trying to really focus on, Sintasso is trying to really focus on platform team needs to build the platform for your business. It's the only way you're going to get the right platform is if you tailor it for your organization. And 80% of that you can get from the cloud native landscape or from you know, different pieces, but platform teams gonna have to put it together. And we talked about quality of load from the app teams, and we're trying to reduce that by shifting things to the platform team. But where Sintasso is now trying to help is how do we help the platform team? Because the more stuff we pile on them, 
And the more pressure we put on them to say, you need to build the right platform, you need to choose the right pieces, and you need to wire them together, and you need to make sure it all works for those app developers who are really precious, who's going to help the platform team? And that's where we're trying to focus because it's, it's like they need to be able to build the right platform and give a like PaaS experience to their customers. That's actually a really good point. I really like how you're thinking about that. And I would love to hear how Chris is thinking about the how part. So that sounds amazing. How do you actually achieve that platform builder? Yeah, and it's, it's fascinating. So just to extend on what Paul has just said, I think there's, there's often an assumption that goes and said that platform teams have one set of customers, i.e. the application developer teams. I think in our experience, we've realized they quite often don't. They have internal audit teams as a customer. They have internal security teams as customers. They have finance in the form of kind of billing tracking as customers. And I don't think we've seen any platform tooling or technologies or frameworks or whatever you want to call them out there that has enabled a platform team to service all of those customers. So CF was brilliant at just serving the 12-factor app use case. Mm -hmm. Not so great if Billing came along and said me, tell me how much that particular application is consuming in compute resource so we know how much to charge the team. Not so great if security come along and request certain runtime security scanning features to be taking place within platform. All of that stuff got very difficult in the kind of puzzles that were out there. I think we've taken on those learnings that we've picked up through our kind of seven years of experience in and around the CF world in Pivotal VMware and Cloud Credo. And we're trying to break that open a little bit. And we're trying to provide kind of toolings and technologies that first of all, allow the platform teams to provide great consumable APIs to their consumers. So people can get frictionless access to the software they need to build their own software to serve their customers. But we're also trying to figure out abstractions that are meaningful to the platform team so they can also service their other customers. So they can inject what they need to at runtime into the software to make sure the billing box is ticked, that the audit boxes are ticked, that the continuous kind of secure software supply chain events are all taking place when they should be that the right monitoring stack is injected into the software that's required. Like we could go on all day listing the needs of a platform. And I think Kratics tries to encapsulate that learning and provide almost like a life cycle, not just the ability to provide the API, but to provide a life cycle for the request of a piece of software. So the platform teams can add the custom things they need mm -hmm. into a request for software. And it's specifically that that we're thinking about. And then once that happens, how do you even distribute that software across the kind of infrastructure estates so that users can start using it? I think once you roll all of those things up, that's quite a gnarly problem to have to grapple with. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Incident.io. Every software team on the planet has to manage incidents and a very large percentage of those teams are using Slack to communicate. That includes us. With Incident.io, you can create, manage, and resolve incidents directly inside Slack. Here's how it works. Head to Incident.io and sign up for free, then add it to your Slack. From there, you have a brand new incidents channel where all incidents get announced. Use the slash incident command to create and manage incidents. This command lets you share updates, assign roles, set important links, and more, all without ever leaving the incident channel. 
Each incident gets their own Slack channel plus a high-res dashboard at incident.io with the entire timeline from report to resolution. Get everyone on the same page from the moment they join the incident and help stakeholders stay in the loop. Add incident.io to your Slack today and prove to yourself and your team that they have everything you need to streamline your incident management. Learn more and sign up for free at incident.io. No credit card required. Again, incident.io. We mentioned Kratics and Citasso a couple of times. And as you know me, Chris, I like my what's. What is Jason, right? That was a very <laughs> interesting question that I used to put during interviews when we used to interview at Cloud Credo. So... Has anybody managed to answer the question yet, Gerhard? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they did, actually. People that, you know, they, they just like don't get, I know, flustered in the moment. They just take it at what it is. It's just like, what is Jason? Like the acronym. What does it stand for? So what is Kratics, Chris? <laughs> First of all, I think the meaning of Kratics we should probably call out at the top there, just on the back of that JSON conversation. So all credit goes to Paula here. Or blame, one or the other. <laughs> We're all about Git praise, unless it's Colin, and then it's Git blame. <laughs> so the name Kratics came from a Greek word. So there's a bit of a tie-in to Kubernetes being a Greek word. And so that's how Syntasso, I go through the whole name. That's how Syntasso got its name. So Syntasso mm -hmm. came from a, a Greek word, which means to compile things in an orderly fashion. When we were thinking about what we're trying to do and the complicated cloud native landscape and like, how can we wire together a good platform experience? Like, that's where Syntasso came from. And then Kratics kind of, we kept on the theme. So Kratics comes from a Greek word, which means to keep. Like in the Greek, I'm not going to say it because I can't speak Greek. But in the phrase to keep a promise, the Greek word for keep is something that looks a bit like Kratics. And that's where we were like, oh, let's make it sound a bit more technical. And therefore we came up with Kratics. Okay. I think that to keep the promise is kind of, that leads us quite nicely into a little bit more to what Kratics actually is. I think we looked, as we were doing like a lot of our investigation into the, the state of the, the, the Kate's ecosystem, we were looking at kind of operators as, as, a, as a technology to kind of build and distribute software. And it, operators are great. They do a tremendous job, but they are also somewhat limiting when you start looking at some customer kind of infrastructure when they've got like one to many, maybe hundreds of Kate's clusters kind of in their data centers. The first problem, I think, Kratics is really trying to solve. So how do we do this? You have to imagine that most people we speak to live in a landscape where their infrastructure is many, many Kubernetes clusters. First thing I want to say, like this is all about multiple Kubernetes clusters. So we've seen this as a trend. I think most people started off in Kubernetes would do the one big cluster pattern. And that's very much how you know Red Hat's OpenShift, that's where they started. They were like, yep, we're going to give you one big cluster. Everything's going to go in there. But then in order to make one big cluster work properly, you have to put guardrail after guardrail after guardrail on Kubernetes. And then you can't do Helm charts, and you can't do the operations you want to do, and it becomes just a bit of a nightmare, like so much fuss. And then governance and compliance come in, and you just you'd say to you, hang on a minute, these things can't all share this cluster. And it will just, anyway, you end up, even if you're just going to do, you know, dev stage prod, you end up with many Kubernetes clusters. And typically, 
customers you've worked with end up in the order of hundreds, if not thousands of Kubernetes clusters. This has been, I wouldn't say exactly accelerated by like GKE, AKS, EKS, you know, public cloud, freely available clusters as cattle, which is somewhat unkind, but many, many clusters freely available. So it's the landscape is infrastructure nowadays, let's just be straight and direct about this. Infrastructure nowadays is multiple Kubernetes clusters. That's your infra, what are you going to do next? So you're trying to get from that to building a meaningful platform API for your organization. And that's what you have to do. So you're on a platform team, you have to get from Kubernetes clusters to a meaningful platform API. So this is where Crassix gets involved to help you make that happen. It's a framework you lay it down firstly onto a platform API cluster where you install it. So all its controllers, its CRDs, that kind of stuff goes down to the platform API cluster. And then you tell it about either some static worker clusters or you give it the, you tell it how to create new clusters. So then you have it in charge of your Kubernetes topology. And it's actual the way in which it then starts to send out messages and give instructions to those worker clusters. We use the GitOps toolkit for that. So we're using GitOps. So effectively, when you deploy Catacratics for free, you get a complete GitOps topology. Everything is kind of auditable, traceable, etc. Uh, via your Git repository of choice, be that GitHub, or if you want to actually use S3 as a repo, whatever you want to use, we use the GitOps toolkit for pushing these things out. So now when you've got that set up, you have your platform cluster, you have your worker clusters, either static or dynamically created. But what you've got now is no platform API. You're just ready to build one. So from there, we then have this concept, which Paula was talking about, about promises, which is where the name Kratics come from, to keep a promise. And your job on the platform team is to collaborate with the application teams, start thinking about their needs. We spoke about like platform as a product before, product thinking, thinking about the needs of the application teams and prioritizing those needs such that you build the most important promise first. And when we say a promise, that is to deliver something as a service from your platform to the customers of your platform. So imagine that your teams are all spending all their time configuring and monitoring and maintaining Java application servers. The first thing you want to do on your platform team is make Java application servers available as a service from your platform API. So you would build a promise for that. You would talk to them about the API they want. So when they are building these application servers, what do they care about? Is it heap size? Is it, you know, is it, is it Java tunables? Is it like they want small, medium and large? You know, what is it they care about? Build out that contract with them and encode that in a CRD that forms a large part of the promise. Then you take that, you take that and you add in into that all of the needs that your business has, so the platform level concerns, such as billing, metrics, monitoring, et cetera, those things are all encoded into the promise as a pipeline. You take that promise and you add it to Kratics, and then Kratics that now is able to offer Java application servers as a service to those teams. And when they ask for one of those uh, uh, Java application servers, pipeline will fire to take care of all the business needs that need to happen. And then the definition of a secure, compliant Java application server will get sent to one of the remote workers, and then that will be available for the teams to consume, for the application teams to consume. And then you go to them, you say, okay, is that working well for you? Can we develop it? Are there other promises you need? And then you iteratively and incrementally build out a platform as a product, as a series of promises in Kratics. So just for me to understand this, if I was to link the concept of a promise to something that I'm familiar with, I think I would choose a template. So we have templates of how things should look like. And you gave the example of Java applications. So what are the things that developers, Java application developers care about? And then we encode them. We have some same defaults and maybe we have some sizing 
And rather than having to worry about this every single time across N clusters, as you mentioned, there will be these promises which will have same defaults and it's super simple to deploy your Java app. Is that the experience that you imagine, Chris? Is this what that looks like? I think it's exactly that, yes. It's the promises providing that abstraction for the platform teams to bring in the complexity Mm -hmm. into the promise that they do not want to or need to expose to the end user. So an application developer team, just give me a small kind of Java stack, whatever that means for them. And then the platform team can encapsulate what that means in reality, kind of JVM sizing technologies that hang around outside the JVM to enable that team. And I think that that's exactly that. And then on top of that, that platform team can then also inject into that running software whatever other tools they need to enable their platform, be it security, compliance, audit, monitoring, like you name it. And again, that's just, that's a set of complexities that the end using team do not have to worry about. They know that when they ask for a piece of software, they get the software that they want, but they also know that the software that they are getting is compliant with the needs of the entire organization. And they can just get on with whatever it is that they're developing without worrying about all of that other other complexity. Hmm. So Paula, if we were to link these concepts that we talked about, the promises, the different teams, the application developers, if we were to link these, and I'm think actually, no, I'm thinking more about like the Kubernetes primitives, right? So the promise, it's something that Kratix brings, but there's also like all the operators, right? That still exist there. So how does this map to team topologies, the book that you mentioned, and what is left out? Because I know that the Kubernetes operators is not something that I think fits with team topologies, right? Because it's just like too much detail and then everyone gets to do their, but maybe I'm misunderstanding this. <laughs> That's an excellent question. So for the concept of a promise, you're you're right in saying that it's essentially an abstraction above operators. We're not trying to get into the space of like building our own operators or writing good operators. Like operators mm-hmm. exist. That's already a a space that people are in. What we are trying to do with the promise is it's an abstraction above operators that allows, as Colin and Chris enumerated, it, it sort of allows the platform team to offer things as a service. And that's the link between team topologies and what we've been talking about. So the team topologies, as well as having the different team types, which I mentioned, so the platform team, the application or stream aligned teams and the enabling and sub kind of subsystem teams. They also talk about interaction modes. And the key ones that we that I talked about in my in my conference talk were collaboration and then X as a service, which Colin described briefly. So really where we think about platform as a product, tying the whole thing together. When we think about platform as a product, your platform needs to be a product an internal product that you think about, you think about its customers, you think about its product lifecycle, you treat it like a product. If step one of that is who are your customers, you need to go and talk to them, you need to understand their user needs. And that's the collaboration part from Team Topologies. They very clearly define the first interaction mode, collaboration. In our world, when we think about Kratics, that looks like this kind of promise framework. You're gonna go talk to the app team, You're going to figure out with them a custom resource definition. What things do you care about? What things do you wish to define? You agree that in a collaboration mode. And then the next step is delivering this thing as a service. As Colin mentioned, it could be kind of a whole Java stack. It could be Jenkins as a service. It could be as big or as small as the needs of the team. 
And you only find out what those things are by that collaboration mode. Mm -hmm. So you go talk to them, you define what they need, you define the custom resource definition, and then the platform team creates that in this promise abstraction and then presents back to the application team, hey, here's the five things that you care about every time you want to ask for a Java stack. So fill in these five things and we will magic you up one on demand whenever you need it. And that's kind of the abstraction. And that's how we are thinking of tying all of these concepts together. Platform as a product, being able to talk to the customers, collaboration, and then taking all of that collaboration, codifying it into something as a service. And then you deliver it as a service and that's the product. And then another thing that Team Topologies mentions is this ongoing lightweight collaboration. Because as Colin mentioned, the difference between project and product, another difference is projects get started and then they get finished. Products are long lived ongoing. And so for your platform, you need to not just, it's not building the platform and then it's finished. It's a product that needs maintenance and needs looking after and needs continuing to be fit for purpose. So this lightweight ongoing collaboration that Team Topologies talks about is also an essential part. Are the promises still the right ones? Are they still meeting the team's needs? Are there new promises that they need? Do they need to like end of life some promises? Like that whole product life cycle that you have with the normal product applies to the platform. That was a long answer, sorry. No, that was actually very good because it helped me visualize all the interactions, all the teams, how they map to the promises, those like technical components, right? That's like at, at a technical layer. So that was very helpful for me. Thank you. And you mentioned something really important because I know step one is always the easy one. Like, let's just get this up. So you get your platform cluster, you get like some worker clusters and you define like some basic promises and then what? Well, that's when actually the hard work starts, like the collaboration that you mentioned. What about upgrading operators? What happens when those operators need to upgrade the resources which they manage? How does that actually work? So, and also, how do you test that the promises that you've defined or that you've changed, how will they interact with the promises that already exist out there? Like, I don't know who wants to take this because it's a really meaty question and you can answer <laughs> it like a subset of it, but it's up for grabs. <laughs> sure, I'll take that. I'm feeling... Confident. Yeah, confident maybe isn't the right word. Some sense of trepidation. I hope this isn't the question that was waiting seven years for... No. <laughs> but it's coming. <laughs> I also want to take a brief step back to something you asked there, Gerhard, that was super, super interesting to me because you asked about templating and that's really interesting. But again, if it's just a simple templating system, why are we not just using Helm? Why just not using any of the innumerable templating languages that are out there? Because it is a lot more, offers a lot more value than that. We can actually use Helm within the system, but it offers far more than that. So the part, day two actually, which is the question you just asked, is actually really exciting for our customers because then you start to start thinking about what happens if, I don't just offer a Java app server. What happens if I offer multiple Java app servers and the CI system and the CD system to deploy to them and all of the scanning and everything else? So the app teams just need to say, do you know what? I'm going to start working on a Java app. And then they get everything they need to make that happen. They get the whole complete setup to make that come to life in a very meaningful way. So they're just saying, I'm going to be working on an app and we expect to have this capital of traffic. And that's what's in the CRD for them. And then when they ask for that, everything comes to life beneath. You have the whole... Mm -hmm 
complete all the environments, the pipelines, everything that comes there is all delivered for them. And it's all security scanned, compliant, it's registered in the right billing system. All of that complexity, all of that cognitive load they would previously need to be exposed to and feel the burden of, that's all now encoded in the promise. But they're getting something that is relevant to their organization. Now, there's no off-the-shelf platform out there, either SaaS or like vendor software, that can get you that. Like You have to build that yourself. Your platform team do have to make that come to life. But when it comes to life, it unlocks the power of your application teams because they're not getting everything that's there. You then raise a great question as well about, well, that's great because that sounds like a really useful experience for those organizations. But what happens day two, day three, day 100, day 1,000? Like, how does that journey look? Mm-hmm. Now, firstly, Paul has said this specifically. We say this to everybody that we talk to about this. Effectively, we're taking high-level user requests. We're breaking them down into a series of documents via the pipeline and everything else. We're pushing out those documents via the GitOps pipelines to multiple servers. When they hit those multiple servers, our system makes sure that the operators are already there and the operators themselves are kept up to date. So we push out those definitions. But if your operators that you choose to use in those promises aren't able to do upgrades, like Kratix isn't going to magically fix that for you. So as Paula mentioned, we are a level above operators in terms of the abstractions here. And if you need to create or choose off the shelf, great operators put out to those to the workers so that when somebody asks for a Java app server, they get a Java app server. And also when they try and upgrade a Java app server from one version of Java to the next version of Java, everything doesn't fall apart. Now, mm. our promise will enable you to push down version documents to the workers to say you should now be in this state, you should now be in this state. And maybe this is arguably the beauty of Kubernetes is it's a fantastic API server and it's declarative and convergent. But the controllers you put in there and the, the operators you put in there need to be able to converge. And if they can't, you've got a fairly big problem. That's not yeah. the problem we're tackling. We are basically saying we get you the high level APIs declarable by your platform team. We get you the pipeline that encodes all of your business processes. We get you the ability to take those resources and push them out to a complex topology of Kubernetes servers and keep all of that up to date. Everything what we would say is southbound of the operator, so the operator itself that's pushed out, and everything that happens after that, that's down to the operators you choose to put out there. You know, and there are loads of frameworks for building operators out there. We're compatible with all of them. Any operator will work in our system. But what we, we aren't saying is that our system will fix bad operators. Okay, so Colin, you don't know what you're talking about, and I'm leaving this talk. That's what you asked me to do seven years ago. <laughs> when you were giving the open crypto talk, you asked me to just say, call it, you know what you're talking about, and just leave the talk <laughs> towards the end. Obviously, you know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's not the kind of thing I would say, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it was meant to be like, you know, like a riff, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that was all very accurate, Colin, and very well put. So thank you. This episode is brought to you by LaunchDarkly. Fundamentally change how you deliver software, innovate faster, deploy fearlessly, and take control of your software so you can ship value to customers faster and get feedback sooner. LaunchDarkly is built for developers but empowers the entire organization. Get started for free and get a demo at launchdarkly.com. Again, launchdarkly.com. And by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is the reliability platform for teams of all sizes. With Fire Hydrant, teams achieve reliability at scale by enabling speed and consistency from a service deployment to an unexpected outage. 
Here's the thing, when your team learns from an incident, you can codify those learnings into repeatable automated runbooks. And these runbooks can create a Slack incident channel, notify particular team members, create tickets, schedule a Zoom meeting, execute a script, or send a webhook. Here's how it works. Your app goes down, an alert gets sent to a specific Slack channel, which can then be turned into an incident. That will trigger a workflow you've created already in a runbook. A pinned message inside Slack will show off all the details, the Jira or Clubhouse ticket, the Zoom meeting, and all of this is contained in your dedicated incident channel that everyone on the team pays attention to. Now you're spending less time thinking about what to do next and you're getting to work actually resolving the issue faster. What would normally be manual tickets across the entire spectrum of responding to an incident can now be automated in every single way with Fire Hydrant. And here's the best part. You can try it free for 14 days. You get access to every single feature, no credit card required at all. That way you can prove to yourself and your team that this works for you. Get started at firehydrant.io. Again, firehydrant.io. One thing which you mentioned, Colin, that, that I really get, and I can start seeing how things are starting to come together, was the versioning that's built into the Kubernetes API. So I can see how you can have multiple versions of the same promise at the same time, easily, because the platform, I'm doing air quotes, because Kubernetes is not a platform, but there are some primitives there that you can use and you can get really far, supports that. So I really like that. Yeah, we've really seen a lot of value in that API. Mm. And as much as I publicly said Kubernetes is a waste of time, and it is a waste of time if you are on those application teams really trying to get to the end goal. But if you're a platform team and you're trying to build a platform, it's absolutely stellar for platform builders. It is a superb, superb tool. I love it as an API server. I actually think almost like the scheduling of the pods are just almost an irrelevance. And as an API server of like pluggable CIDs and its dynamic nature, it's truly, truly superb. And I adore it for that reason. And that's why we, within a small company, have been able to build what I believe to be a really, really impactful, meaningful framework, Cratics, so quickly. It's because we're just leveraging the best of Kubernetes and bringing it to platform as a product, bringing it to multiple Kubernetes clusters. You know, we've taken the best of Kubernetes, combined it with the best of GitOps, and we've produced this framework that I'm really confident is going to have a huge impact. I have seen this link in the past when we were rocking on uh, Cloud Foundry. And then there was Bosch as well. Awesome piece of tech. But I think the combination didn't quite work. And, and I'll get to that in a minute. Because we had Cloud Foundry, which had the scheduler. Bosch, which was kind of doing a lot of the same stuff with agents and how it was like, you know, scheduling jobs and the life cycle of Joe's was managing that. And then we had Concourse, which again had a scheduler. So we had three types of schedulers, slightly different with templating languages and their own rules and their own life cycle management. And then Kubernetes came along, which for me was the perfect combination of the three different types of schedulers. And it had some extras. So finally, we could unify those three things. And we have seen CI CD systems like Concourse, Tecton, I'm thinking, build on the Kubernetes API, exposing the jobs and the pipelines and Argo CD as well. And I'm sure that Flux as well. And this is the intriguing part, because I don't know anyone that is using Flux at this scale and for this purpose. So Flux, the way I understand it, is part of your GitOps toolkit, which is a core component of Kratics. And I'm really intrigued by why Flux and not Argo CD. So what is in that Flux ecosystem that attracted you to it? Who can answer that? I think we were looking at the problem of how do we get pieces of software deployed onto Kate's clusters that could be 
distributed across like many different logically discrete Kit clusters. And the GitOps Toolkit has done a tremendous job of that. It has very, very powerful tools that allow it to listen to a message store, be it Git or a bucket or Docker, for example, and just pull down something when it when it sees a change and it will apply that quite happily to to the cluster that it's uh, deployed on. Do you mean like the concourse resources that have triggers? Do you mean in that way? That feels like a trick question, Gerhard. So I'm not an expert on concourse or concourse right. triggers. So can you explain back to me how you mean that? And maybe we can find a pattern there. So you know how we had like those resources, like for example, GitHub repositories, and then a new version would like trigger that resource. So then that trigger could be the input to like a job and you can have multiple inputs. So to me, when you've described this component of the, the flux, I don't know what exactly it's called. To me, it sounds like that primitive resource which triggers based on a new version and the version could be a git sha or in s3 there's like a new version right for for an object there's like a version if you have for example a semver resource you have like all those triggers and to me this sounds very similar in that you trigger on certain outside events what is that component called in flux do you know i don't know what the components called but to go back and then to maybe answer your original question of okay. why flux or the GitOps toolkit versus a non-Kate's native technology such as Kubernetes. I think it is the Kate's native kind of where the, the GitOps toolkit has been engineered from the ground up. I think you mentioned earlier a whole suite of technologies. You mentioned Bosch, you mentioned Cloud Foundry and then Diego Scheduler, you mentioned Concourse, which has its own kind of scheduling technology built in there. All of them have their own APIs. They have their own templating engines and the way of kind of getting software up and running in the way that you need to. I think Kate's is genius, and I think Colin touched on this earlier, that the thing that really sold Kubernetes to me was the custom resource definition mm. kind of pattern that they've come up with, and then sitting the controllers and operators behind that as an API to then control the thing that you're trying to control. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the GitOps toolkit, Kratix itself, operators to some extent, they're all using that consistent API. And I think it's that leveler. As a platform developer, you're only having to learn one set of patterns. And those patterns are transferable across multiple different technologies. I think that's where the technology choices really come to the fore in Kate. So if you learn that kind of CR, CRD operator pattern, mm -hmm. those learnings are transferable. Okay. Whereas with Concourse may well have the patterns already. It may be as powerful, but it's yet another learning curve. It's yet another it technology is, yeah. that you have to orchestrate on top of a Kate. Yeah. How do you test Kratics? I'm really interested in that. Like, how do you test a platform builder? Do you just build many platforms? Do you use property-based testing? How do you? How does that even look like? I wouldn't know where to start. What do you do today? Let's let's do that. What do you do today? How do you test Kratics? How do we test Kratics today? So I can give you the very very blunt, honest, business-focused answer to that, Gerhard. Mm -hmm. We're currently three people. Right. We've spent the last nine months getting a business off the ground. So we've been coming up with a business narrative, looking at the problem space. Kratics was a technology that we built to kind of tackle that. We think it's a great technology. We think it has huge amounts of power, but certain dials have been turned through the development of Kratics. And that continuous testing that I think you're hinting at is maybe not quite where it needs to be in Kratics mm -hmm. right now. We've been focusing on other other problems. Yes. Chris is confusing the last two questions. So what Chris is saying. So f firstly, we test Kratics by using actually a Ginkgo test suite. It's very straightforward. Yes. And we have uh, a set of promises, sample promises. So we have a Redis promise and a Postgres promise, which we inject, test that it was also working, test we can do all the right things with those mm -hmm. promises, manage the lifecycle of the promises. I think Chris was conflating that maybe with the Argo CD kind of things you were touching on and being like, effectively, what do we use for our CI server internally? Because mm -hmm. right now, effectively, we have one 
pair, myself and Chris, working on the code. We code, we test on our laptops, we commit. We don't have CI because you don't need to integrate because it's just stuff coming from the two of us. So that's maybe the, the way those things come together. Mm-hmm. I did want to touch on that as well. Argo CD, like why use Flux rather than Argo? Yeah. Argo CD is more made, I think, or is more specific for almost like applications in Kubernetes. It is a CD server, whereas mm-hmm. Flux is almost like an agent you put out on all of your remote clusters specifically to pull from repos and stay up to date with those repos the flux mm-hmm. is a very much flux or GitOps toolkit as a whole is very much fit for purpose of what we're trying to do and it's focused on that kind of sole responsibility but i think when you said your GitOps toolkit i want to be very clear here, it's not ours <laughs> like i need to thank lots of people for yeah. their contributions like we're standing on the shoulders of giants here thank you so much to the many people that contribute to the GitOps toolkit we haven't put anything back in yet we're a tiny company <laughs> and it's a huge huge thanks to those people for GitOps toolkit for kubernetes itself everyone out there that's part of the ecosystem huge thank you to all of you because you have help companies like us be able to come to life and get value going quickly. So as mentioned, we have a uh, Ginkgo-based test suite for Kratics, which you can just, you know, if you want to try it out, it's all there, github.com slash syntasso slash Kratics. You can run the test suite. It does require some kind of like Kubernetes testing infrastructure around kind, but it's all there for you to run should you choose to run it. We did actually start Kratics entirely test-driven like from the outset as a set of behaviors mm-hmm. defined in gherkin style syntax Mm -hmm. so we did started it with given when then so the whole thing was driven out from behaviors of given when then the whole like user experience and everything was driven out from Mm -hmm. that so we we very much started kind of test first in that way of thinking about things but i think as we it's actually fairly straightforward to test i would say because these are promises they're not not actually that clever if that makes sense they're not complex is that the way of looking at it we are taking kubernetes we are injecting crds and controllers into it and we are asserting the behavior of them so it really doesn't like get things too wildly complicated but the power of that system because you can inject something of that nature is tremendous so yeah our, our testing setup effectively ginkgo kind yeah. that set of tools comes together to give us a good feedback cycle i think as we move towards being able to assert complex suites of upgrades in terms of like this promise changes then that promise changes what happens on any interactions between them across multiple clusters so our cost of testing is going to go through the roof mm. straight so I, I, I get that but right now we're not at that stage so first of all, I just I think I need to give a bit of background. So we have worked for so many years together that when Chris answers something, I understand what he's not saying. And I don't think the listeners are, are getting that same experience. <laughs> for that, I have to apologize that I can't convey that. Colin actually understood what Chris was not saying. <laughs> so Colin said what Chris wasn't saying. <laughs> so thank you, Colin, for that as well. <laughs> it makes a big difference when a group of people like like this comes together. And the downside is that there's like a lot being said, not explicitly. <laughs> so uh, that's what happened here. Yes, I looked at the code. I was thinking of Ginkgo as well. Colin, thank you very much for that. What I was thinking and what I was trying to hint to is the complexity of these types of tests because they're integration tests, right? Like how does this CRD, when it's set up, actually behave in practice? Does it do what it's supposed to do? How do you test that? That, to me, sounds like an expensive test to run from the beginning. Kind makes it easier in that you can run the whole Kubernetes in Docker, but still, it is an expensive test to run. It's not like you're unit testing, and you can only get so far with that because you're really generating CRDs and how they interact with the Kubernetes API. So your primitives are already high-level and expensive. So you can't really simplify that, or at least I wouldn't know how. So what you've done 
that's exactly how I would approach it. Thank you. That's good to hear. It's a little slower than we'd like. So I think as we move on to, as it gets more complex, we're going to have to find ways of doing things. But I mean, thank you again to the Kubernetes community. There's some awesome tooling out there mm. around like uh, just running like pure API server in memory. The problem is a lot of our stuff does require the controllers to run as well. But I mean, we use Builder. Another huge thanks to the Builder community. It's awesome. Builder v3, absolutely loving it. It's really good. So I think the hard work of everyone else in the community is what's enabled us to go fast and keep ourselves sane and do all the things we need to do. And again, testing, I think, is going to get more complex. We've done this for years, Gerhard. As the testing suite gets slow and grows, then you put effort into the testing suite and you improve it and you continuously tread that tightrope of like investment into testing versus mm. trying to keep things going fast. And as your speed slows down, you think, well, I need to invest a bit more in testing to get it go back up again. And you just kind of, you, you tread that tightrope. And as Chris was saying earlier on, right now, we're so far biased towards kind of going fast on the small team. We don't even have a CI system because you run all the tests locally as a pair, as the one pair, and then commit. So that is CI. That makes sense. I remember do- doing that and people looking at me saying, are you crazy? Like, is there Jenkins running on, on the Mac? Yes, I have a spare one. Why not? Like, it's just me and two other people in the same office. We don't we don't have a big team. So it just makes sense, you know, especially when you're like taking things off the ground. I think, again, this is something that maybe people don't or can't appreciate because we haven't done a good job at explaining it, is the company is U3, right? So you have a C- CEO, COO, and CTO or VP of Eng. Well, again, why not CTO, Chris? Why aren't you C-suite? Explain. <laughs> why am I not C-suite? I yeah. think the honest answer to that question, Gerhard, is if you form a company, you do it because you want to do the thing that you want to do in life. Right. As you've probably gathered from this from this podcast, I'm not a great public-facing person. I'm not the person to stand on the rooftops and shout about the public, mm-hmm. uh, to shout about the technology direction of a company. I'm very much an internal-focused person. Mm. You know my strengths. We've worked together for years. I, I enjoy working with individuals. I love running teams. I love getting heads down into the code. And as the company grows and changes, that's the role I want to do. So you start a company to do the thing that you want to do. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. Not get pushed into a role that you're uncomfortable with. I don't want to do. Mm. It's more to it than than just the label, right? So, that's the honest answer. Yeah. That and Colin won't let me. <laughs> He's keeping CTO for someone else. Is that what it is? <laughs> no, it's not. It's not keeping no. it for himself. <laughs> for himself, CEO and CTO. I don't think that has happened before. <laughs> he knows he will be ousted at CEO eventually, uh, and he's keeping CTO CTO around. His left bicep. <laughs> is CEO and his right bicep is CTO and they're massive. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what's coming next for Kratix and for Sintasso in the next six months, for example? Do you have anything on the horizon, growing the team, developing Kratix? What do the next six months look like for you? That's a great question. What does it look like? I mean, we, <laughs> so since we've been going, we are a small company, as I think Chris and Colin mentioned. Some might say that we have over-engineered some of our processes because we have come from, (laughs) (laughs) we have come from a background of, you know, Pivotal, big product company, VMware, huge product company with three people, but we are very focused on OKR framework. We have our objectives and key results. We have our board meetings. We have our OKR progress meetings. We have our retrospectives. I see where we're going with this, yes. You can see yes. where I'm going? I, I, I see. Yeah. We've brought a lot of our learnings from the last seven years into mm. our tiny three-person company. And so we are regularly having objective and key result meetings to review. Mm. And we have regular board meetings to plan like what's the next three months, what's the next three years. 
interesting thing is that you know the plans change the plan is the plan is all the plan changes as yeah. we like to you need to have it say it change, so don't worry <laughs> about it yeah i know what you mean so uh yeah it's quite open right now you hinted a lot of things that like we would be lying if we weren't thinking about some of the things you've hinted at there gerhard so we are three people I think we've run that message home. <laughs> As we start to work with more and more customers, believe it or not, there are some that's starting to constrain, constrain us even further. Mm. So as we go to work with customers, that means we have to potentially slow down on some of the product development side, for example, and that's something we're not comfortable with. So then you look to, well, what levers can we pull to grow, which might mean bringing more people into the company to scale the engineering team, for example, or to scale the consultancy side. As we focus on those two things, perhaps that means we take our eye off marketing and then all of a sudden you've got that problem. So we're, we're constantly reflecting on what our constraint is within the business and we're constantly looking to redress that. And I certainly speak for myself. I'm sure Paula and Colin won't object to this too much, that we're probably starting to hit our limiters of three as we start to work with customers and continue the product development and mm. something's going to have to scale somewhere over the next coming months and we are thinking about all of those options and okay. that's the fun part of a, of a company I, the small it's, it's exciting and there's always something new what's been awesome but also really scary has been that our customers we've been talking to have said to us effectively we've had this directly from a few of them what we've built here with Kratix it's a system it's not a tool so it's very easy to talk about a small sharp tool and build these small sharp tools and many of our customers are really good at doing that but then they have organizational challenges structural challenges these kind of things because Kratix encodes the opinions from team topologies and makes them real via software our customers are taking Kratix and using it to perform a reverse Conway maneuver you know where they're saying like okay this thing is going to help me build a great platform team I'm going to help that good platform team have great interactions with the application teams. And that's the setup I want in my organization. So I'm going to help my platform team deploy and get value from Kratix and load it with the promises we need in my company. And that will help my organization move towards the structure I want to have. So they're saying to us, this is awesome. You have this system that will help my company become a better system. But that's also then scared us because <laughs> we're like, that sounds great. And you're from this company with 10,000 people and we're from this company with three. And therefore we are, you know, we will be taking investment. We'll be hiring people. We'll be scaling up to meet that demand because what we're building here is not just a small sharp tool. As I say, this is about organizational change via people and software together. And that's non-trivial to deliver. But as I say, the three of us, we're trying to do it. We're going to scale. <laughs> we're going to grow. We're going to make it happen, hopefully. Fingers crossed. But yeah, so the path forward for us is very much continuing to work with those customers, continuing to build on the success of Kratix, taking and scaling Syntasso as a company so it can build out around Kratix. If anyone out there that's listening would like to contribute to Kratix or to try it out or to give us feedback, like it's Apache 2 licensed, github.com slash Sintasso slash Kratix. Please do try it out. Please do give us feedback. Please feel free to contribute. Whatever you can do to help us out, we'd greatly, greatly appreciate it. Even if you just want to try it in your org and say, actually, this wasn't for us and here's why, that would be greatly appreciated by all of us here on the team. And that is the Colin that seven years ago convinced me to join Cloud Credo. <laughs> just listen to it, to him. <laughs> Colin in like, you know, two minutes. That was it. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Thank you. I, I have to do my best because so far we've had Chris say we don't do testing. <laughs> 
that's not true, by the way. <laughs> you know, as I said, like the things. And Paula say that we've got way too much process. <laughs> we love process. We love a bit of process. So we don't do testing. We've got way too much process. We hate testing. <laughs> we love process. I'm just like, where do I even start here? So I have to try and like put the best foot of the company forward before somebody shoots it. <laughs> so my feedback to everything that you've said, all three of you, is the blog doesn't lie. Just go and check out the blog. Go and watch Colin's crazy talks through the years. They're amazing. You'll have so much fun. Go and watch Paula's talk. I haven't seen it, but I've seen your other talks, Paula, and I know it's going to be good. Chris is cold and grumpy on the outside, but he's really warm and fuzzy on the inside. <laughs> and he will really look after you, right? Like as a manager. And uh, I've had Chris as a manager for many years, and that's what actually happened. So if it would have been as bad <laughs> as you may have thought at a certain point, I don't think we'd have worked together for like five, six years. <laughs> so <laughs> no, it's it's much, much better than it sounds from, from the outset. And the GitHub repo never lies. Go and check the code. It's all public and see what you think. So as we are prepare to wrap this up. For someone that's been listening to this, hopefully to all the way to the end. They're still listening. Yeah, <laughs> They're still listening. What are, or what is the key takeaway? And we can maybe start with Paula. What do you think is the key takeaway, Paula? I think for us, a thing that we've learned is people need platforms to help them go faster. And we've seen the pattern. It's interesting how, I think for me, I feel like I've been talking about this, you know, platform as a product, pl like platform gap for quite a long time. And I think a problem that is ongoing and all the new tooling and the cloud native landscape and like, you know, vendors coming out with new things, it, it's all still a problem that uh, the actual challenge of trying to build the right platform to be able to go faster is still a problem that everyone's facing. And so if there are people who are still, who've made it to the end of this podcast and are, are still still here and listening to us, I think if people are out there and they are having these challenges, if they are either in a platform team and they're struggling because there's too much load being put on them, or if they're in an application team and they can't get anything from their platform team because they're somehow delivering too slowly, anyone who's got those kind of challenges, like those are people we'd love to talk to, love to help, love to learn from, like that's what we're, that's what we're here to do. Thank you, Paula. Over to you, Chris. I would plus one what Paula said. I think the key takeaway is I reflect on what's in Tassel and what's in Tassel can add to the industry. If it's on the platform developers to reduce the cognitive load on their customers, the application developers, for example, then it's on Syntasso and Kratics to help reduce the cognitive load on those platform team developers. It's like we're here to help. We've been there. We've felt the pain. We've created some of it in the past, let's be honest. Mm -hmm. And we're here to, to really help, to help in that space. Like, we want to help the platform teams. Thank you, Colin. Yeah, I think I'm actually going to reflect some words back at you, Gerhard. So Solomon Hikes, uh, founder of Docker on your show, said, if your platform is generic, then your application is generic. So we know that people want to build differentiation and value into their apps. And therefore, you're going to need a differentiated and valuable platform within your organization. Mm -hmm. So with Kratics, we try to make that easier for platform teams to build out the platform that your organization needs. So it sounds a bit corny, but we're trying to build rails for platform development. Or Phoenix. It's less corny, Phoenix, yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> James Dog runs Phoenix, and it's great. <laughs> but yeah, I know what you mean. So yeah, a, a framework for building platform as a product is what we're trying to build. And yeah. we all know the future of infrastructure is going to be multi-cluster Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. So we are at the intersection of those two technologies. And if you want help with building out platform as a product on 
Kubernetes, uh, if you want to talk to us about it. I mean, the real thing we'd love people to do is to take a look at Kratics, give us feedback, reach out and talk to us. That would be absolutely wonderful. So if I had one takeaway for people to do, please do reach out to myself, Paula, maybe not Chris as much. <laughs> I'm joking, yeah, I'm joking he's, of course. He's in basic. Like, we already established that. <laughs> it's become quite clear in the whole process. You don't want to talk to me, you want to talk to Chris. He's too polite, yeah. <laughs> if you're on the marketing pitch, speak to Colin. If you want the honest answers about what really goes on, yes, <laughs> speak to me. <laughs> that is actually true. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so thank you very much for today. I had great, great fun. It's been too long since we hung together. This was good. And I'm thinking six months from now, first of all, team topologies, I'll have to add it to my queue. There's eight already, but that's okay. I can manage one more. <laughs> one it's more very book. good. Very, very good. Not too many pages. Very, very practical advice. Thank you. And trying Kratics out. I love playing with tools. And what do you say? Systems. That's what Colin said. It's not a tool, it's a system. And that's intriguing. Because it's so much more. There's so much more happening there. So there's one to follow. Thank you very much for today. See you next time. Thanks. Thanks for having us, Gerhard. Thanks, Gerhard. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Ship It. This is just one of our podcasts for developers. Go to changelog.com forward slash master for the rest. You can join our community at changelog.com forward slash community. There are no imposters in our Slack. Everyone is welcome. Huge thanks to our partners, Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linux. Thank you, Breakmaster Cylinder, for all our awesome beats. That's it for this week. See you next week. Hello. Hello.